Good morning, friends. Are you excited to begin a new series? Yes, this is going to be so good. On that high note, the low note is we've been trying to order the James journals for a month and they arrive tomorrow. (laughs) All right, here's the question. As we start this new series, what is the difference between being called a Christian and being a Christian? What is the difference between being called a Christian and being a Christian? The difference is action, is lived out. One is title only. The other is life lived, correct? Now, titles are important. Titles help label things in the world. Titles help label us. We crave titles. We pursue titles. There are things that you want to be said of you. You want to be called a graduate. Some of you are pursuing your doctorate. I want to be called a manager, president, CFO. I want to be called accomplished, champion, whatever it is. I want to be called a parent. I want to be called a husband, a wife. You're pursuing a title. Now, in my experience, I always assume those who have titles that are above mine have an easier job than mine. And so I think of, oh, I can't wait to become a manager because they just sit around and drink coffee all day. And then all of a sudden people are delivering to you TPS reports and you're wondering, what do I do with these? And so you finally achieve some of these titles and you're like, yeah, I'm a manager. I'm a CFO. I'm an owner. I'm a graduate. I'm a doctor. And you live in that title for about 30 seconds. And what comes to your office is a problem. And the first thing you ask yourself is, what does a manager do? Like, what do you do as the CFO? I thought the CFO did this, and now people are coming to me with problems and challenges, and they want me to fix it. And now you're wondering, what does that person do? You're a parent. It's really cool. We see Haley, a new baby born today. It's like, oh, so fun. We're parents. I'm a parent. And you get home, you're like, what does a parent do with this baby? Why does this baby poop black tar? And then it's like, well, then why does this baby baby not poop? Why does this baby poop too much? What do we do? And that just continues on through your whole parenting career. You think you got it on lock, and then all of a sudden you have a two-year-old. And the two-year-old is losing their mind in a store somewhere. And you're thinking, I'm not that kid's parent. Like, don't give me that title. But you're asking, what does a parent do? What does a parent do when you're helping your kid graduate and you're launching them off into the world? What are we supposed to do here? How about as a parent and you're trying to parent your parents? I'm trying to grow into a season I've never experienced before. What do I do here? What's the difference between being called a Christian and being a Christian. It's someone who wants to be a Christian is constantly interested in how do you live this out? What do you do in the world we're living in? And James is the great book for that. James is packed with action. It is the most imperative, dense letter in the New Testament about what do you do? And it's just going to talk about the practical life lived as a Christian. What do you do when you experience troubles? 
What do you do when you lack wisdom and insight of what to do next? What do you do when you're tempted? What does a Christian do when they have lots of resources and money? What does a Christian do when they have no resources and they're experiencing poverty? What does a Christian do when they see places of injustice happening? What does a Christian do when they're experiencing injustice? What does a Christian do when they find out that they've been the agent of injustice? What does a Christian do when they don't know what to do? What does a Christian do when there's uncertainty? What does a Christian do when they're angry? What does a Christian do when they want to listen really well in marriage? What does a Christian do when they find themselves fighting with their spouse, quarreling with their friends, quarreling with their family? What does the Christian do? That's the book of James. So if you're interested in more than being called a Christian, and it's your heart's desire to be a Christian, to grow up as a Christian, you're gonna love the book of James. So grab your Bibles. We're going to to James chapter one, verse one. James is right after the book of Hebrews, which we finished. Some of you guys are wondering, are we just, just going through the next book? Not quite like that, but we're excited to be in James. So grab your Bibles, go to James. If you bought yourself a journal, you're one of those that I, I can't rely on Thomas. He always lets me down. Just gonna, just gonna buy a journal. Grab your journals and fire them up. We're gonna mark up the beginning of James. First is this, is who's the author? It's great to receive advice from people. It's extra special when you know who the advice giver is. So it just opens up by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this James? Well, this James is none other than the brother of Jesus Christ. He's the half brother that Matthew records for us this is Matthew chapter 15, verses 52 to 54, where the crowds around go, okay, here's Jesus. And we see his brothers, James. We see his brothers and his sisters here. So it means that Mary had Jesus by the Holy Spirit, but then Mary came into union with Joseph. They had a marriage and then they, they built a family. And Jesus had half brothers and sisters that he grew up with. And James is one of those brothers. Now what's so amazing about that is that John records for us that while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, James, his brother, did not follow Jesus as the Messiah, did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. But after his resurrection, Paul tells us, this is 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that as Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses and more witnesses in the area, one of the very first people that Jesus goes and reveals himself to is resurrected from the dead, is his brother James. And James becomes a believer. Now just imagine that this is like one of the proofs of how can you believe that Jesus really is who Jesus says he is? Is what would it take for you to believe that your sibling is the son of God? (laughs) You know? I mean, it's like they got to see all the private areas of your life. They got to see you at your worst. And so here they're coming to James and say, James, you believe that your brother is Jesus? He's like, yeah, I do. But, but you saw him when he was 13. I know. You remember in his 20s? I do. And you would say, sinless, son of God, dead, buried, resurrected. And James would say, I know. I didn't always believe it. But I would tell you today as his brother, seeing behind the curtain, Jesus is the son of God and I'm following him. And James actually becomes a very important person in the early church. Some consider him to be like the first Pope, so to speak, because he became the head of the church in Jerusalem. 
And James became one of the leading authorities in this early Christian movement. Paul recognized James as this authority. In Acts chapter 15, there's a council that's happening in Jerusalem and they're trying to hash out some theology of, okay, if you, if you are Jewish or if you're, you're Gentiles and you're, you're coming to this family of God, What's required of you? Like, how Jewish do you have to be? What parts of Judaism do we continue to practice as Christians? And what parts of things do we, do we let slide and let go? And all of these different leading voices like Paul and Peter and others are hashing out the theology. And so who's gonna step up and be the leader of leaders? Well, Acts 15 tells us it's James. James steps up and he actually gives these closing arguments of what the church will do. And so James is the half-brother of Jesus and a very important figure with great authority in the early church, which makes his introduction to us so fascinating. What does he call himself? A servant. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant. You would think if, if I were introducing myself, I'd say, Thomas, younger brother of Jesus. I taught him everything, you know? I, I, would, I would link myself to the family of origin of our Messiah. I would try to prop myself up to be heard. But James says, no, I'm a, I'm a servant of God and I'm a servant of the Lord. Not, he doesn't say my brother. My brother's the Lord. I've, I've surrendered my life to him, the Lord, Jesus, who is the Christ, the promised Messiah. That posture is a posture of what? Humility. He's so humble. Even in his position of authority, even his position in his lineage, he says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that title servant is a humble title, as well as James is connecting himself to others in the Bible that have been called the servants of God. That's a title given to Abraham. Moses, David. And so there is a sense in which James, in his humility, is also linking himself saying, this is the position that I'm gonna hold. is a position of a servant of God to bring you a message to lead and shape those who follow after God. And now circle that word and in the middle there. We in English use that word and to kind of divide things or to separate them. James is using them to link them together. To say, God and Jesus, this is oneness happening here. This is Godhead language. That Jesus isn't separate from God, but he's linked to God. It's God and Jesus Christ. I serve one God. It is the God, the Father, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this letter is written to a specific group of people. It's the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion, the diaspora, which is just a title given to Jewish Christians who are living outside of the region of Palestine. Now remember in Acts chapter two, they're, they're celebrating Pentecost and all everyone's in town for Passover and the Pentecost. And the spirit of God is poured out and Peter starts speaking to everybody and they're just blown away that they can hear Peter in their own language. Well, that's all these different tribes of people that have been dispersed in all these different regions around the Mediterranean. They've all come into Jerusalem. They come to know Christ and then they go back home with the gospel. And so James is probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest letter written in the New Testament. This is the earliest kind of correspondence to all of these Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine that are probably asking these questions. I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. 
And then their wife or their husband's like, okay, well, we have a problem. How do you be a Christian if this is the situation? How are we to be Christians in this situation? And James, as like a, this pastor, just writes this letter out there to say, okay, all the tribes in the dispersion, I wanna tell you, it's not just being called a Christian. It's not just being called forgiven. It's not just being called saved. It's not just being called child of God. It's not just being called heir. I wanna tell you how to be a child of God. I wanna teach you how to be an heir. I wanna teach you how to be forgiven. I wanna show you how you be, how you live as someone who is saved in a world that doesn't get it. And so the very first part that James starts with is I think the very place that we start with in our Christian faith is we accepted Jesus. And we're kind of hoping that if we accept Jesus, all the problems are gonna go away. I don't know if you were like me, I was like, yeah, like, I think there's just, if you, get, if you get saved, you're gonna have less problems in your life. And so you accepted Christ and then troubles came. And James just starts right there. It's okay, you're gonna be called a Christian and you're gonna experience troubles. And the first part of troubles are these trials. And the second part of troubles is gonna be this temptation. And so we're gonna look at trials today and we're gonna look at temptation in a couple weeks. So how do you be a Christian in the middle of trials? Now, we know what it is to experience trials in our life. Big trials and small trials. Things that are really insignificant, it seems like, but just kind of irritate us, like they're like, just a burr in the saddle. And then big trials. Big trials in relationships, big trials in health, big trials in financial securities, financial outlooks, trials in our job, trials in our marriage. There's no one in this room that's immune to trials. Even if you're not a Christian, everybody experiences trials. But how does a Christian think about trials? It's so different than the world. And so James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. The first thing he says is count, consider, think about. When he opens this up, he's not gonna tell you how to feel in trials. He's gonna instruct us how to think about trials. Counting, considering, accounting, that's mental work. So when you experience trials, James is gonna say, I wanna I want tell you how to think about it. Because what you think about trials is gonna influence how you feel about trials and how you act in trials. It begins in the mind. You see, oftentimes we think faith is just this blind leap into darkness. No, our faith is a robust intellectual process that James says, okay, when you experience trials, turn your brain on, like activate your mind and start thinking about them. And I want you to count them, consider them. That's like terminology of an accountant. You, you receive these credits in here or you receive a bill and then you have to place it into a category. Where does this belong? And so how do we normally account for trials? What would you consider them? What would you label them? A nuisance, something's wrong, this should be avoided. I don't want anything to do with it. I wanna get out of this as fast as possible. That's probably how we normally account, consider trials. This is wrong, it's broken, my life is not working. I want out as soon as possible. And James says, no, Christian, this is gonna be radical. Turn your brain on and I want you to account for it very differently. I want you to account for it in joy. 
I want you to put this in the category of it's going to produce joy in your life. And you're thinking, James, what planet do you live on? This is so different than the world things. I know I get it, but we're talking about how to be a Christian, somebody, somebody who's so different than the world. And so count it all joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. Now it doesn't say if you face trials, does it? Like maybe there's gonna be this time you have a trial. No, it says when you do. What did Jesus tell us? In this world, you will have tribulation, trouble, trials. Like Jesus told us. So if there's anyone in this room that's thinking that they're experiencing a trial and something's wrong. No, that's just the ordinary experience of life. In this world, Jesus told us, you will, not if you will, you will, guaranteed, nobody's missing out. You will experience troubles. Now his hope is, but take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. I've overcome those troubles. But James here, when you experience trials, not if, but when you do. So everyone's going to experience it. I know I'm gonna experience it. When you do, consider it joy. And these trials are of various kinds. They're varying. That could be anything from, I broke my finger. That's a trial. To, I have terminal stage four cancer. That's a trial. It could be, I have a riff with somebody in my class. Or that could be like, I am ready to file divorce papers in my marriage. See, they're various kinds. They're, they're small and they're big, but they're all trials. They're all a part of faith. They're all a part of life. And he wants every single one of them, of the varying kinds, small and great, the ones that meet you in your youth and in your old age, to be met with this mindset, I'm gonna categorize this trial as something that's going to bring joy. Now, how do you do that? What's in your mind as a Christian to account for trials as joy? Well, he goes on to tell us. In two other words, you can circle the word steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word is endurance or perseverance. I call this grit with my kids. You need to be gritty in this world. My kids are like, what's grit? Like grit is an essential characteristic of life. We describe it like this in my house, doing hard things until they're done. You need grit, you need spiritual grit, endurance, steadfastness, perseverance in the middle of a trial to go through it until it's over. Now trials needing steadfastness are indicative that they're gonna last a long time. It's not like a quick thing, like, well, man, that email was no good, but then I sent an email reply and, ah, that trial's over. Sort of. <laughs> but it's more like, man, I'd, I thought this would be over by now. And we're talking weeks, months, years, seasons. And why is this not wrapped up yet? That's a trial in which produces gritty spirituality, endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. And says so that, that it's gonna have an effect on you. It produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, circle full effect. I would call this formational. Let it form you, shape you, conform you, 
mold you in this trial to look differently when it's over. It's going to shape you. This is formational. This is spiritual formation in the image of Christ. God is committed to our formation to look like Jesus. So we experience a trial. We're going to to be gritty, steadfast, persevering Christians. Let it have its full effect. We're not aborting the process. We're full effect that you may be perfect and complete. This is the goal, perfection and completion. It's not joy. It's not even steadfastness. The goal, the destination is that you would be mature, that you'd be perfect, that you'd be complete, that you would experience a mature, complete, perfect faith. That's what God's after. Now, if you have no desire for that, then you'll have no appetite for trials. You have to long for the work of God in your life. You have to say, I want it. I want to be a holy man. I want to be a saint. I want to be refined. I want my selfishness and these habits and these appetites to be gone. I want to be given new shape. If you crave those things, if you want that, if you want to become the woman that God desires to refine you to become, then you can consider trials a joy. If you want nothing to do with the formational work of God in your life, you'll have no appetite for trials. Think of it in this way. There are so many things that we value, and so we're therefore willing to go through troubles and trials and hardships to achieve. So think of the athletes that are, that are competing right now in the Olympics. My wife and I are watching the Olympics. You guys are probably like, you guys are the only ones in America watching the Olympics. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, but you think of these athletes that are going through troubles and trials in their trainings, but what do they value at the end of the day? What's it going to produce? Well, I hope it produces a, a medal. Hopefully that medal's gold. And so because I value it, I'm willing to go through the hardships it takes to do this. And there's a cycle to this formation. And this cycle is formative in almost every area of life. This formational cycle, think of like education. You start off in kindergarten and it's the same formational cycle, this growth cycle as when you were in college. The year begins, you study, then that is tested and then you graduate and you move on to the next year, which begins, and then you study, you're tested, you graduate, and you move on to the next year and you progressively grow into things. And some of you guys say, I love this so much, I'm willing to go through the trials to get my graduate degree, my master's degree, my doctorate degree, because I value this. Some of you in this room are great musicians. And you have the same kind of cycles of growth that you have to go through. And then finally, you're able to play that instrument, to play that piece of music you've always wanted to play because you were willing to go through the trials, enduring them, being formed by them, that you would experience growth and depth. Same thing happens with athletes. If you're an athlete in the room, it's not just about playing games. If the goal is to be a champion, you play and then you review what happened. There's game film. And then you create a new plan for this weekend. And then you practice that plan. And then you play again. 
And hopefully you win. And then you review and then you plan and then you practice and then you play. And then hopefully this cycle produces something you value, which is a championship. And so what James is saying is here's the cycle of Christian formation. And I know you're in the middle of trials. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna illuminate where you are in this cycle so that you can see that these trials lead to joy. So let's zoom out on our journals. Let's get some space that we can write this down, okay? And here's this cycle with these words that James is pointing out of Christian. Here's how you think, how you consider it joy when you're in the middle of trials, because this is what is being produced that you might be complete and mature and perfect in Christ. So think of joy first, all right? Just write joy up there. So joy, I want you to think about joy. Now, how is joy connected to trials? Well, it's actually what you're experiencing right before a trial happens. And so then you can write trials down. And then there's the cycle that goes around. From trials, it comes over to endurance. Endurance, that perseverance, that grittiness. And then from endurance, you're experiencing a formation if you allow it to have its full effect on you. And then when you experience that formational piece, you actually experience more joy. So think of it just back to the music analogy. So you're experiencing joy. I love music. I wish I could play music. Then you go practice it. You're like, this is really hard. And your parents force you to practice this. I don't really want to go through this. This is kind of like a trial. But you endure. And there's a formational good that happens. So now you finally learn that instrument, learn that song. You're performing it. And what's produced? A greater level of what? Joy. I'm enjoying this more. And so for those of us who love Christ, who value and long for his formational good to come on our life and press us into the mold of Jesus. When we see trials, we see where it's connected. It's through endurance of them. There's gonna be a formation that happens. Things are gonna be formed and they're gonna be taken away from my life that are causing problems. Things are gonna be formed to my life for my good. And what I'm gonna experience is a deeper formation a deeper completion, a deeper maturity in my faith. And what that produces in me is a greater joy as a Christian. I experience more joy as a Christian today than when I first believed. Why is that? It's because I've sat through trials and allowed God to form me. And when I experience his formation in me, that the goal is completion, perfection, more of that. It's like another piece to the puzzle. When I experience more of it, I'm like, wow, God, you're so good. Look what you've done in me. I love you. And then like you're living in joy. And then what happens? Another trial comes. And then you experience endurance and then formation and then greater depths of joy until it's fully complete in heaven. In the presence of God, what does the psalmist say? Is the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's the fullness we're after. And so this whole cycle right here, you can just highlight in yellow trials, highlight it's like, this is the goal of perfection and completion. If you allow it to have its full effect. Now that's not the only cycle that's possible here. If we're not gonna experience endurance and sit through formation, well, then we'll go the other route. And that goes over to this other word instead of endurance, which is escape. You can draw an arrow over and say uh, that I might escape it. So I experience a trial and I consider it wrong, bad, 
an annoyance, an inconvenience. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to get out. I'm going to, I'm going to medicate it. I'm going to mediate this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, migrate. I'm just going to leave whatever it is. And so you escape so that you can experience relief because you want out as soon as possible. And that relief lasts for a little time. And then another trial comes. Now, if, if one side is producing this completion and perfection, I would call that fullness. It's, it's filling you. It's forming you. This side is totally different. This is, this is forming actually an emptiness. It's taking away from your life. And so if, if the Christian way to think about trials is through endurance and formation and to joy and back into trials, endurance, formation, and joy, that's fullness. That's filling. On the other side of it, is emptying. It will produce something as well. So as you escape to get relief back into a trial, to escape to relief in another trial, you become, what's produced in you is probably things like bitterness or anger, or this is, this is perfect for every like 40-year-old male in the room. You become a cynic and really sarcastic, or you might just become someone who is, is, is doubting and you get really discouraged. And the reason that happens is we never let the formational work of trials shape us. And so it's actually an emptying effect. But for the Christian, when you experience a trial, and you might be in a trial right now, you have to know where you are in that cycle of growth into completion and, and perfection. And it's actually gonna produce something of joy in us. Now it takes great faith to sit through trials, doesn't it? That's why he says, you know, it's the testing of your faith. So the testing of your faith produces this. Now, what is the testing of your faith? The testing of your faith is not so that God can figure out where you're at with him. He already knows. It's not like God's up there with his, with his checkboard. He goes, all right, Raphael, come up. Here's a trial. Pass. Thomas, come on up. Trial. Fail. You know, it's like, ah. he has to figure out where we're at. That's not what's going on. What is the testing? Like, who needs to learn where they're at? That's right, Kirk, I, I do. This, this is teasing out where I trust the Lord and where I don't trust the Lord. So the tests are coming in. These are all kinds of tests. These are tests that come just because the world is broken and we experience the brokenness of the world. Uh, these are tests that come in because we live in a spiritual world and we have an adversary that hates the fact that we follow God and he's actually gonna cause troubles to be in our life. And so you might be experiencing troubles because you live in a spiritual world and there's an adversary against you. There's, there's also just the sense of like God permits trials and he disciplines those he loves. We looked at that in Hebrews. And so this might be something that God is sending into your life. These trials are an opportunity for us to have our faith, our current faith tested so that we can know where we're at with God so that we know that where we can continue to trust him. So what does it mean to have faith in God? So that's the umbrella. It's like, do you faith in God? Do you, do you trust God? Trust him to do what? What is the faith that he's testing? What is the faith that we're trying to be believing? Well, it's, I think, three things. And you can just write it maybe in the column. It's his presence. It's his provision. And it's his purposes. Like, will you sit in a trial what happens to me is God doesn't care. Like, since I have problems, he's not here anymore. He forgot about me. He abandoned me. No, will you trust him that he's still present with you? That in the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil for he is with you. He's present with you. Can you trust that he has provision for you? That it's not on your own strength. See, trials are, are wonderful ways in which exposes our weakness, 
that we might experience his strength. That's what trials do. Will you trust that he has provision for you through this trial? And this last one, would you trust that it has purpose? So many times when we experience pain, it's like, this is just stupid. Like, what's the point of this? Would you trust that, that God truly has a divine purpose in allowing this to be in your life, a formational good that you might look more like Jesus and experience greater joy? That's the faith that's being tested. And to what degree do you have that faith in him now? And then to go through the trial, that when you experience the next one, you say, why, well, I, I grew up a bit. I trust him a bit more. I don't see it right now, but I trust. I have faith that he's present, that he will provide, and that he has purpose in this that will lead to my joy. And so I just love that James just comes down to me and says, okay, when you experience a trial, Christian, you want to know how to be a Christian? Think this way about trials. And then believe this about trials. You, you know that the testing of your faith produces this. You know this. This is facts. Believe fact. And then value what it produces. Like long for what comes out, a mature and complete faith that you would be lacking in nothing. You'd be lacking in nothing. There's a French priest who lived at the end of the 17th, early 18th century. And I was reading some of his writings and I stumbled upon this. And it was so helpful for me that he just reframed all my trials. His name is Jean-Pierre de Cussade. And he says this, when God in his goodness sends you some disappointment, one of those trials that used to annoy you so much, before everything, thank him for it. As for a great favor, all the more useful for the great work of your perfection in that it completely overturns the work of the moment. You see what he's saying? When your trials come into your life, instead of trying to escape them, get relief, avoid them, you say, God, thank you for the work that I was doing is completely interrupted because now all I'm thinking about is this trial. And I know that it will produce a formational good in me that will bring about greater joy in me as you shape me to look more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. So I don't know what trials are in your life right now. I don't know which ones are gonna to come to your life next. But if you're interested in being more than being called a Christian and you wanna be a Christian, this is the mind of Christians when we experience trials. James isn't telling us how to feel. He's telling us how to think. And now you know how we think through trials. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this family of believers here at Calvary. Lord, I, I personally know many of the trials in this room. And I know the grief and the hardship is bringing to my friends. And so Father, only you can change the way we think about this. And so, Father, I pray for the increasement of faith in families, in marriages, in singleness, in youth, and in age. 
that they would trust you to be present with them, to provide for them, to have purpose in this. Father, we want to trust you in our trials. They're not meaningless, but they're formational. And so, Father, we just surrender to you. We want to surrender to you and call ourselves servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as your servants, Lord, would you shape us in your likeness. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask this. By the power of your spirit, Father. Amen.